You are listening to Vida Abundante. We have started a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to John. Here's Pastor Jonathan Gallardo. So this, this passage that we're studying today has three very important aspects, and I'm going to try to get to them all today, and we have a very important uh, service today, especially because we're going to be celebrating the communion, uh, which we want your hearts to be ready for during this moment and during this time. And so remember, we're going to be doing communion at, at the end of the preaching, but I want you guys to be connected to that. But in this, we're going to explore three options, I mean, three, three aspects of this passage, and, and three of them include God revealing to us his light, or what we can call revelation, in verse 9, the rejection of many, in verses 10 through 11, and its ultimate welcoming or reception, verses 12 through 13. And I want you to pay attention to some key words in this passage like light, world, and knowledge. Sometimes even rejection is mentioned here a bit. So we're going to explore these three aspects, and I want, I want you to really understand why John is putting this out there. And if you remember, one of the key themes in the Gospel of John is not only an apologetic of who Christ is or why he's here, but also a huge emphasis on evangelism. I think you guys got a little bit last week with Pastor Ismael talking about evangelism from the book of Romans. And and all throughout the Gospel of John, we've been talking about this very important aspect of the presentation of Jesus Christ. We are people of Jesus Christ, of the Christ, the anointed one, the one who came to save sinners. And that is the important value in the Gospel of John. That is the most important person in the Gospel, not only in this Gospel, but in the entire book of the Bible. All of them, in all 66, it is a presentation of who Jesus Christ is. And so this important aspect of it will bring to light why John wants to emphasize this with such uh, weight and with such gravity. He says in, the, in verse 9, the true light, there's a qualifier right there. See, if we look at this from verse 9, if we read it back together, it says the true light which gives light to everyone. It qualifies what type of light it is. This isn't just any other light. This isn't just one of the many lights. This isn't just another option or alternative. This is the true light. Light that shines and has the opportunity and the power to give light to everyone who it shines upon. This is coming to all, and this, is the, this aspect of truth emphasizes a genuine, real notion about this light. It is real. It is genuine. You can feel it. You can touch it. You can experience it. It is true. A lot of us here understand what is this concept of fake and, and, and real when we touch certain clothing or when we touch certain shoes or certain objects, we understand what's counterfeit and what's fake and what's real. So this true light comes in and it separates because it puts in perspective that there are other counterfeit lights out there, but there's only one true light. And that's why John emphasizes this with such strength. It brings you to decisions. It brings us 
to decisions, to make decisions, especially in the first century where the people listening to this and hearing this and reading this, they're thinking to themselves, well, what about this person? What about that? What about the prophets? What about our fathers, especially in the Jewish context? And John says there's one true light that has come into the the world, and it's shining upon everyone. So these factors are important. It's a distinguishing factor, especially in the first century. You've got to remember, as this is written in the first century, we have to consider some of these obstacles that get in the way of people experiencing the true light. And one of them is, in particular, those who oppose the light. For instance, in first century Roman culture, they had this, this center figure called the emperor. And the emperor was considered to many a god. The emperor was designed to be worshipped. There was true emperor worship in the first century. As a matter of fact, the title Augustus means the venerable one. The one who is worthy of worship and more than a man. So the first century people understood their emperors to be some sort of God or some sort of light. As a matter of fact, one of the most, one of the awful first century emperors called, named Caligula was considered a God and was worshipped as the sun. He was the true light in the first century, according to Roman culture. They were worshipped in life and deified at death, and so there was these competitions or, or a certain aspect of competition with these other lights that were going around in the first century. But John says, this is the true light. It separates. It brings people to a realization to recognize that there is only one true light. Friends, you're surrounded in a culture of thousands, hundreds of other religions. And they always ask you, what's the difference with yours? What makes your religion more true than that religion? My friends, the book of John clearly says that there is one true light. It qualifies this light in Jesus Christ. Even John the Baptist, as we read in verse 8 a couple weeks ago, John the Baptist was not the light. If you look back at verse 8, what does it say? He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Even those in the Christian world or in the Jewish context or in the religious aspect, even they were only servants or those who were preparing the way for the true light. John the Baptist was considered the greatest. Even Jesus Christ considered him the greatest prophet, yet he was not the true light. True light is only found in Jesus Christ. But the other aspect of this revelation is not only the distinguishing factor of the Lagos or the light or Jesus Christ. It's not just that it's the single most important person or entity in life in general. It isn't that it's the only real light that exists, but what does this light do? John is emphasizing its nature, and, it's emphasize, and he's emphasizing its work. The scope of this work in the light of Jesus Christ is to bring revelation to everyone. Shine light on the world. So revelation 
And it includes the shining of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. It shows people who Jesus Christ is. It reveals to them the nature of Jesus Christ. That's why John says in the beginning, he was God. He was in the beginning. He was the true word of life. It shows them the person of Jesus Christ, which is what John is most preoccupied with in the gospel. It shows not only that, but it also shows our own sin. It reveals us who we are. It reveals the first, to the first century Jew and Greek and Gentile, it reveals to them what they are. They're sinners. When they are posted next to, juxtaposed to a great, awesome God through Jesus Christ, it reveals to them their nature. It reveals to them who they are. Ever wonder why people sometimes feel uncomfortable coming to church, especially after a long week of party, especially after a long weekend of, of doing things that they shouldn't have been doing? Most would not come to church, not because of the hypocritical aspect that people always complain about church. Most would just be like, I just don't feel right. It's just, if I go in there, like, fire's going to fall from heaven. They don't feel comfortable because they realize that next to the light, they are sinners. They're a mess. So this revelation of light shows us Jesus Christ. It shows us our nature, our blindness, our inability to see re the, the true light without him. It shows us also the reality of the darkness that we live in. First century church and the first century people lived in a very dark period. We explained this a couple weeks back. The setting, the context, the culture that existed during this time, it was a dark culture. Can you imagine if in our modern 21st century time, if the president of the United States would ask us to worship him as a god? This is the type of setting that people lived in. This is the uh, uh, type of like low uh, shock value. But in the old times, in the first century, this was normal. People were worshiping their emperors. To us, that would be, you're crazy. I would never do that. But it shows us, this light shines, and it shows us the reality of our darkness, of the world that we live in. But then it also shows us truth. There is the right way, there is the wrong way, there is only one central truth. And then it brings us to decision, brings us to make a choice. Brings the first century church to realize if you're going to believe in Jesus Christ, you're going to believe in him as the one true light that can bring life to many. This light shines upon everyone. Calvin says that the rays of the light shine on every man. Jesus says, for he makes his own sun shine on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The light of God shines on everyone. Now, you may think that that's a positive thing. And I think it is a positive thing. I think it's a very positive aspect of the light we can see in the light but it brings us to conviction it shows us not necessarily illuminates us by bringing us to a conviction of our hearts to say i can't keep living this way 
But it's a general aspect of a revelation of the light to all people so that all people do not have an excuse. Jesus Christ has come into the world, is shining his light in the world, and because the truth is out there, ignorance is bliss. Well, not bliss. Ignorance brings you at fault. Ignorance now keeps you, or as a matter of fact, the light shines and wipes your ignorance away. Oh, what about those people that never go to church? What about all these other people? I'm talking about what John is talking about right here. When Jesus Christ comes and is sufficient to bring light to everyone, what he's emphasizing is that people no longer have an excuse. The light of Christ shines, and it shows us who Jesus is, and it shows us who we are. So friends, we no longer have an excuse in this light. We are awakened. We see. We see what is evil. We see what is good. We see God, and it is on us now in this revelation to come to a convicting attitude. Are we coming to God or are we not going to come to God? Are we going to live in the light or are we not going to live in the light? That's why we read Romans chapter 1 because Romans chapter 1 expresses to us what God has done, what he has revealed, and what people have done. They have rejected. They have decided to live off their own light. And they've opposed themselves to the gospel in Paul's sense. But this light not only serves to illuminate or to bring or to shine light on everyone in general as a common light, as a common grace to all, as Jesus himself mentioned that he brings light on the just and on the unjust. It's not just a general aspect of light, but it's also meaning that it has no exceptions. People look at Christianity now and day and they think that it's just an exclusive club of goody two-shoes of only holy people that come into this. But this is not what John speaks of. This is not what the church is. If you take a look around you, we're all here sinners. None of us here can raise our hands and say, hey, I got it all figured out. I mean, I, I'm, come to me for all the answers. I'll help you out. Like, we cannot, and none of us here, and if you can, then, then we, you should be up here. <laughs> you should be talking and preaching. But most of us can realize, or I hope that all of us can realize, that we don't, all have this figured out. We are not all perfect. We need the light, but there's no exceptions to this revelation of light. It goes to the lower class. It goes to the poor. It goes to the rich. It goes to the educated. It goes to the illiterate. It goes to all. There is no qualifier for the revelation of this light. It doesn't just shine on good people. That's what most people convince or confuse church about. You look at the Gospel of John, the, the one who's writing the Gospel is some simple fisherman. The disciples that surrounded Christ were just normal people. Some of them were very hated by the public. This light shines on every type of person. It isn't because you're better than somebody that, you, that you're in church. It isn't because you came from a wealthy family that you've been have given this wonderful opportunity to come to Christ. It isn't that. It's for everyone. I love how Jesus presents this. Go back, go, go with me to the Gospel of Matthew. I love Jesus' words in his, at the beginning of his most famous sermon. 
in Matthew chapter 5, look at who, who Jesus has in mind for this gospel and for this light. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has people in mind here. It can be the poor, the meek, the merciful. It doesn't necessarily mean Jesus came only or the light of Christ shines only on those that the world considers great. The light of Christ is for all. This is the general scope of the work of the light. Now we go to the second aspect of what we are going to be talking about here in in verses 9 through 13. So the first aspect we touched on was the revelation of this light. Now we go to verse 10 and we, we, verse 10 and 11, and we experience the rejection of this light. And the scope begins to narrow down. Here, this rejection comes in verse 10 when when we read, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This is a common theme in, in the Gospels. Jesus, the light of the world, is consistently rejected. Jesus. Remember what we've been talking about, that, that most people in our modern culture would not, in a sense, reject Christ because they see him as a social activist, as someone who, to, who's out there to help those in need, the disenfranchised of our humanity. And they see Jesus as a peacemaker. They see Jesus as one who gives uh, to the poor and to the hungry. They see Jesus as a social activist, and that's it. And so... They don't reject him on those grounds, but when it comes down to it, when Jesus begins to speak on him, his, his works as saving works, that's another question. And that's why culture in the first century rejected Christ. Culture in the 21st century rejected Christ. If you remember in, in the same gospel of Matthew chapter 2, remember King Herod when he realized that a king was going to come into the world. A king was born in Matthew in reference to this Jesus Christ as a baby coming into this world. What did King Herod do? He set out a decree to, to kill all the male babies that existed. At the beginning of Jesus' life, He was already rejected. He was not wanted at the beginning of his life, and he was a simple baby. Towards the end of his life, we read in the same Gospel of John that we've been exploring in in chapter 19, we see that people had a choice. Do they give up Barabbas, or do they give up Jesus? Who should they set free? This Jesus Christ figure? Or this thief, murderer, Barabbas figure. And who did the people choose? They chose Barabbas. 
And Jesus went to the cross. Jesus has always been rejected. That should not be of a shock to us. The fact that you will call yourself a Christian at work will bring rejection, will bring people to look at you with disdain and say, really? You mean you're one of them? That, that's what you want to associate yourself with? And they'll look at you with disgust. Jesus has always been rejected, but Jesus comes in to his world, a world in this sense that he himself created. We've got to pay attention to this word world, and we're going to explore it as we go through the entire Gospel of John. We're going to explore it in more detail. This is kind of just the, the introduction since we're only in the prologue in the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. But this word comes out 78 times in the Gospel. This word cosmos, this word that means the world, it has a lot of different meanings. And in this case, it is considered the wicked place that Jesus Christ enters. The place where the wicked exists in his epistle, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, he says, the world with its lusts. This is the type of world that Jesus comes into, that the light of Christ shines. And of course, those in a wicked world and those who are obsessed with, with their own lusts and desires, of course, when the revelation of light comes in, they want to put it away. Leave me alone. I don't need anyone to shine their light upon my darkness. I'm okay with my darkness. I'm okay with my sin. I'm okay with what, I, what my flesh desires. I don't need anyone to tell me, what to do. And this is where the light of Christ comes in. The world that he created, it opposes him and it doesn't comprehend him. If we go back to verse 5 for a little bit, it says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Remember those two aspects of meaning in that word? It doesn't understand the light. A dark place will not understand its darkness when it sees the great light. Because as the epistle of John says, it's caught up in its lusts. It loves it. Sometimes you talk to people and, and you ask them, why, why do you still do that? Why, don't you see that it, it's messing with you? It's, it's, it's causing harm to your marriage. Why are you still involved with that? And, and though they want to hide behind the addiction, probably, in most cases they desire it. They love it. You talk to friends when they're in, in college and, and you try to talk some sense into them and, and, and they're sleeping around with, with different women every other weekend and you try to talk to them and you're like, bro, that's just not the way to do it. Be careful. You know, not only in the physical sense, but even in the spiritual sense. Be careful. And, and they just, I don't, you know, stay with your religion. You go to church. I, I, I'm okay. This is my life, bro. You don't need to try to run my life. The wicked will always reject the light. It brings uncomfort. Doesn't want to, doesn't want them to, to come and be exposed. This world that God comes into through Jesus Christ, his own world, the one that he created, didn't recognize him. And it wasn't because the light or Jesus Christ was a stranger but it's because the world was estranged to him. 
The world was hostile towards him. The world hated him. You can see that because as a baby, the world wanted to kill him. The world hates Christ. I know that's a strong word in our context today, but it's true. It's in hostility towards Christ. And that's why the Apostle Paul in, the, in, the, in his wonderful epistles talks about this wonderful concept of reconciliation, where God reconciles us to himself because we were estranged, because we were enemies of God. The world is an enemy of God. It hates God. It hates Christ. And it rejects relationship with Him. And this is the word, world that the light shines upon. Once again, we get this wonderful figure of grace through the wonderful act of God bringing common grace to all. It's shining on everyone, not just the good people. It shines on the wicked and the evil. It's interesting because in the Gospels, we even see nature recognizing this word. Nature recognizes Jesus Christ. If you remember that wonderful story in the Gospel of Mark where, where all the disciples are in the boat and the boat's rocking because the sea and the wind are moving and all the disciples are going crazy and Jesus is asleep and they wake Jesus up. And Jesus wakes up in, 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 in the boat, and he gets up, and he's like, what's the issue here? And they're like, look, man, look. And Jesus gets up, and he just calms by the word, by the, the, the words that come out of his mouth. The sea and the wind stop. And then in verse 41, the, the disciples are like, who is this guy that even the sea and the wind obey him? It's interesting that nature itself can recognize its creator. The disciples in the boat didn't even know what was in the boat with them. Luke describes this wonderful image of people worshiping Christ at the entryway. Coming in on Palm Sunday, everyone is shouting and praising God, praising Jesus. There are others who don't want to praise him, and they're trying to shut everyone up. And Jesus says in Luke 19, if they don't praise me, the rocks, the stones on the ground will lift up their words in praise. Nature itself knows who Jesus Christ is. Nature itself praises God. This knowledge of God in the, in the way John uses the word of knowledge, of this gnosko of, of God, is not just an understanding or a superficial understanding of who God is. What John is saying in verse 10 when he goes to say, He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. It isn't just this concept of like, oh yeah, I've heard of him. Yeah, I know who he is. Yeah, I've seen him around. Yeah, I know how his beard looks or his hair looks. Yeah, I've seen him come across. I've seen him do some miracles. It isn't that knowledge. People don't know you by 
what you put on Facebook, even though that's kind of what you want to present yourself as. People don't know the real you, uh, not through Instagram. People have to know the real you, how they become friends. You are befriended. You have dinner together. You, you go out together. You, you know somebody at a deeper level. It isn't just a superficial knowledge. It is those who know Christ follow him. As opposed to the wicked, as Hebrews chapter 3 verse 10 says, they always go astray in their heart. They have not any knowledge of his ways. The ways of God are different for the wicked, and that is why they don't know him. Remember, the wicked can't have an excuse and say, we don't know who Jesus Christ is because the light has shined on everyone. There is no excuse. The wicked know Christ to a certain extent. But those who are righteous, those who, are, who, are, who have come to him, have understood that they love him, that they believe in him, and that they can see him. The knowledge word here that John uses goes at a profound relational level. Those who know God, those who know the light, have a relationship with the light. That's the aspect of the knowledge. John isn't calling us to just a superficial knowledge on a Sunday morning. John isn't call, calling his disciples or even the first century uh, audience here to just be like, yeah, well, as long as you know what he's done, that's cool. I mean, because you could just know him. No. John is calling us to a stronger understanding and a stronger relationship with Christ because to John, those who know him, love him. This is on a parallel line with those who hate him. Those who hate him do not know him. Those who love him know him. The world rejects the light for they love their darkness more. The scope narrows down in verse 11. Here we have the light coming to all in verse 9, the light coming to the world in verse, in verse 10, and now the scope narrows down in verse 11. It funnels down to a certain group of people. Here we can say the light is specific. The light comes to his own. What does this mean in verse 11? If you want to read that with me. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. What does this mean? What is he talking about? In this moment, Christ comes to a specific group of people that were chosen from what we consider the Old Testament. This group of Jewish people, this Jewish nation, the chosen ones of the Old Testament, those who constantly rebelled against God themselves. Israel. It is now Israel and God. And Jesus has come to shine not only on everyone, but specifically now on the people of Israel because they have a pattern of rejecting God. And guess what? The story gets grimmer. Because to this group of people that were God's people, what does it say in verse 11? And his own people did not receive him. He comes into the world 
and the world doesn't accept him or know him. He comes to his own, and his own do not receive him. And here we have a stronger sense and use of the word and, and receive, where we get this word paralambano from, from Greek, that is a conscience rejection of Christ. See, the world is, is not knowing. They, they are oblivious. They, they are opposed to that. But here, it comes to a specific group, and the specific group says, we don't want you. It is the, to this sense, uh, the words here that are used in, in the Greek language talk about family, talk about home and a house, and to the people that, rec that know him, and, and, and they themselves kick him out. They themselves reject them. It's like that, that, that opportunity you have on a Saturday morning when someone knocks on your door and it may be another, uh, another evangelist coming or somebody else trying to get you to go to the church or it may be the ComEd guy or one of those fake ComEd people that want you to change over to their gas or whatever, whatever that's called. They come knocking on your door and you open and you're like, ooh, and you close it back. It's a conscience rejection saying, you aren't welcome here. You can't come into my home. His own people denied him and rejected him. The scope was wide, gets narrower, and even his own have pushed them aside. same pattern that all that Israel did throughout the entire Old Testament. But my friends, there is a happy ending. So we've experienced the revelation. We've experienced the rejection in verses 10 through 11. But something happens in verses 12 through 13. Let's read it together. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the reception. How does this happen? Read with me Matthew. Matthew 16, verse 15 and on. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. How does one receive this? Go with me to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Verse 9. Not a, as a result of works, so that no one may boast. How does one receive this? Again, First John. Go with me to the... Epistle, 1 John, chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called 
children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. My friends, we can come to this realization, the people that will come to Christ are those that the Father himself reveals himself to. It isn't a general light anymore. It is a direct call to the heart of those that will receive him. He does the work. He puts himself there and he calls them to light. And we're going to see this time and time again in the Gospel of John. So I'm going to just introduce this concept to you right now as a brief introduction. But they receive him because the Father himself has made them see. There are others who cannot see. And there are those who can. And they welcomed him. And not only did they welcome him, but they believed in him. And not only believed in him, but they believed in his name. That is why the apostles will later on go on to evangelize and say, call on the name of Jesus Christ. Those who call on his name are saved. Because in his name, in the Jesus Christ figure, in the Christ, which is not his last name, in the Christ aspect, we understand that he functions as prophet, priest, and king. Christ means anointed one. He is the Messiah. The Messiah that his own people rejected. He is the one who John the Baptist will later on go on to say, and we'll read in the Gospel of John, the one who takes away the sins of the world. He is the one who wipes away the darkness from the sinner's life. He is the one that wipes away sin. They believe in what? They believe in his name. His name is powerful, and because they believe, and they believe in his name, they are accounted righteous, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 4. How? How does this happen? Well, we read a bit of it in Matthew. We read a little bit in Ephesians and a little bit in 1 John. How does this happen? John himself clarifies this in verse 12 when he says, He gave the right to become children of God. God gave them the right. God allowed this to happen. God called them in. It doesn't matter what you believe, my friends. It is in whom you believe. And God gives us this gift. God gives us this gift in Jesus Christ, and he gives us this wonderful gift of becoming children of God, adopted into the family of God. This is a new birth in John's, in John's vocabulary. This is a new life, an eternal life. This is what God brings us into and calls us to an exclusive commitment and value. We are children of God. How, again, John goes on to say, how we are not. In verse 13, it says, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How are we to come into this wonderful revelation of God? Well, here's how you don't. It isn't inherited 
That's what the word blood there means. And it's in plural in the Greek. So it's talking about lineage and inheritance. And some even consider this as an as a aspect of, of the two bloods of a marriage. Uh, when they conceive and, and, and bring to life a, new, a newborn. It's the mother's blood and the father's blood. But in this case, it's a stronger reminder that to the Jews in the first century who thought they were saved because of their father Abraham, and Jesus is saying, hey, it's not by your lineage. It is not what you inherited. It is by faith in the name of Jesus Christ. You're not born into salvation. Oh, but bro, my, my, my mom is, is a Christian. My dad's been a Christian. My grandpa was like on a crusade with Billy Graham. My, I mean, we, we, we've been in the church, and so that I'm automatically in. Oh, it's not by blood, my friend. It isn't because your parents have been a Christian your, their whole life that you can be saved. You're going to come to a decision in your life about salvation. It isn't inherited. It isn't how people, it also isn't by the flesh, which is also in that aspect of, of sexuality. In the beginning, we see this, this bloodlines mixing together. And then in this aspect, it's this desire of the flesh, not in, the, not in a sinful way, but this desire of the consummation in the marriage of how kids come to be. But it also means that it isn't by the desire of that flesh that you become a child of God. You don't just naturally yearn for, for God because we know that God came into a world that was hostile towards him. It isn't an emotional high where you have a religious experience and then you say, yes, I want Jesus, because we've seen that time and time again. We've seen people come to Jesus on an emotional high stick around for about a month, and then jet for about eight years. And then come back because something went wrong in their life. This isn't what we're talking about. And this isn't what John's talking about. John goes on to say a third qualifier of how one becomes a child of God. It isn't by the will of man. This qualifier also introduces the selection of birth since we've been talking about this overarching theme of, 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 of bloodlines and, and sexual intercourse and, and then in choosing to commit to a child, that's one aspect of it, but it also entails the person's natural ability or the person's volition to choose it. You know what? I checked out Muhammad, I checked out Gandhi, and Jesus you know what, I think, I think I'm going to be with Jesus. I, I like him a little bit more. I think he appeals to what I, what I choose to live by. So I'm going to give him a shot. He's my homeboy. I'm down for Christ. I'll put it on my bumper sticker on the back of my car, and I'll put the little fishies there too. It isn't by the will of man. What is it then? John says, but of God. Ultimately, our salvation rests on God. Not by our blood, not by our flesh, not by our will.
but on God. And we could all be very thankful for that because it's God's doing in our life. Because if God left us to our depraved humanity, to our, to our desires, if God left us to that like he did in Romans chapter 1, if God abandoned us to, for us to, to come to him, man, none of us would be here, including myself. We need God. God is the author of our salvation. 